You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. All right, let's move forward to the next very interesting topic on the list. Um, (laughs) So you've done, again, quite a bit of research and writing and work on cultural and racial bias in preservation, especially as it relates to bias in architectural academia. To be real careful with those, because I could mumble (laughs) right through those words and nobody would understand so can you can you talk a little bit about that work? You, you've already mentioned Eleanor Raymond, but you can talk a little bit more about her. And then I know you have a couple other like big projects that you are kind of yes, passionate about. Yes, definitely. Um, so while I was writing my thesis on modern residential architecture, I really wanted to figure out what factors come into making buildings more demolishable. What makes a building so ripe for demolition? A lot of it had to do with square footage. Modern homes are typically quite small. Land value. If you live in a place like California or New York or Connecticut, Massachusetts, the land value is astronomical. So in most cases, the land is worth more than the house. So that's a real sort of risk factor for demolition. And I also found that lesser known architects, which typically, not necessarily typically, but which include women and people of color are more likely to be demolished and their legacies are just now being reinvestigated by scholars to be quite blunt the architecture field hasn't really dealt with its extreme sexism as well as art history has Mm -hmm. there hasn't been a great deal of corrective scholarship it's starting now which is great but that took too long art history did it in the 1970s with the uh, famous essay why are there no great women artists and that essay really looks at the sort of cultural factors that come in that came into women not being able to practice art in the same way that men could Mm -hmm. um, mostly because they weren't allowed to and the way that architecture as a profession, the way that architecture is taught, the way that architecture is taught in the United States is based on the Walter Gropius, Marcel Breuer, Bauhaus tradition. That tradition is not inclusive of people who come from a poorer background and need to work a second job to go through school. That's not inclusive of women and people of color because a lot of times They are those people who need to work a second job to get through school or sometimes women will have other personal engagements or if they have a child, they can't have time to to do that. And so there hasn't been much corrective work to make the field more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that shows in the extreme lack of diversity in the field right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though there are more women in architecture school than ever before, a lot of those women drop out of practice because the culture in firms is so toxic to a woman trying to get ahead. And frankly, the culture in firms, a lot of ways of just complete and total overwork, staying all hours of the night, all that stuff, that's 
toxic to men as well. Nobody should be doing that. But in particular, it's been a real stumbling block for women and people of color trying to get into a field that was not designed for them Mm -hmm. or to help them out at all. Despina Stratagakos has a really wonderful book about women in architecture. I was going to ask you about books. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Despina Stratagakos, she is a an academic out of the uh, University of Buffalo. Um, she, in 2016, published a book, Where Are the Women Architects? And this is, honestly, of all the research that I did on trying to find out more about what architecture was doing to right this historical wrong or do more corrective scholarship. Honestly, one of the only books out there, the only book out there, that discusses this issue. And so I highly recommend reading it. It's a very like slim volume. You can read it in like a day or two. It is, it discusses all of these issues. It talks about Eleanor Raymond, who I was speaking about before. In her career, the reason why she focused more so on residences is because the Cambridge School of Architecture, which yes, it's wonderful that there was a school created for women to study architecture and learn architecture, Henry Atherton Frost, who founded the school, believed that women only could do residential architecture. Right. And so that's that's why she practiced residential architecture. And a lot of times there is an association of anything associated with the home or the domestic, i.e. the feminine, is seen as less than, you know, a giant public project. Mm Mm-hmm. And so these buildings are undervalued, and these women's talents are also undervalued. I mean, Eleanor Raymond built one of the first modern homes in the United States. Hardly anyone knows who she is. Mm -hmm. There is one published, there's one published book on her work by Doris Cole, and it's very, very small, has a really short interview with Raymond in it. There's not a great deal... Of, of meat to it. It's a great book, but it's just, it's not very, it doesn't have all of the historic research. There was a great dissertation mm-hmm. written by Eleanor Gruskin on Eleanor Raymond and on Eleanor Raymond, her relationship with House Beautiful and her relationship with her female clients that never made it beyond the walls of academia. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to find it because I was a graduate student. I had access to those research those research resources and it is gripping it is absolutely fascinating you learn so much about how she worked with these historic structures and how it really is so significant and when you learn about adaptive reuse for instance you only learn about it in the commercial sense and that is wrong Mm -hmm. I think we should think about it also in the how do you adapt a historic home to contemporary use Mm -hmm. and Eleanor Raymond was one of the first people to do that perfectly. Mm-hmm. She she wrote a book on historic uh, sort of more colonial vernacular farmhouses of Pennsylvania. So she was very interested in historic architecture. But if you see the way she works with interiors, there's a modernity to it that is so refreshing but sensitive to the historic materials of the home and just the design and layout of the space in general. And that's something we should really be thinking about. Like, I don't think that it, it's not all about the big commercial commissions. 
homes are where we spend such a great deal of our lives, we should acknowledge that kind of architecture as being just as significant as a museum building or a library building or something like that. So that is just one of the big things that I think is really important in sort of writing that wrong. Another person who has been overlooked until very recently is Paul Williams. In California in particular, they are doing an excellent job of sort of rectifying their wrongs in sort of overlooking his his work. He was kind of like the undersung architect of pretty much all of the really famous buildings in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He built homes for a great deal of celebrities. He built Frank Sinatra's famous bachelor pad. Mm-hmm. And he also built affordable housing for veterans of color in collaboration with other other black real estate agents and developers because they saw black veterans getting home from the war and they didn't have anywhere to live, but they had these GI Bill loans. Right. And so they created Carver Manor in Los Angeles, which is basically just a typical sort of suburban development. And essentially just opened it up for people of color to be able to buy it. And they sold out immediately. Mm-hmm. And um, that neighborhood, which is so significant, especially because it was one of the few developments open to black people, that neighborhood is not known as being significant mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Uh, everybody I talked to had never heard of it before, which was so shocking to me because everybody had tried very hard to like figure out, you know, which houses of Paul Williams were, you know, still on the market. Like, can we preserve this? I'm not going to help you demolish that Paul Williams building. You know, mm. that sort of thing. Right. But nobody was thinking about this really important affordable housing development. And he also did a similar affordable housing development in Las Vegas, Nevada, which also nobody talks about. I heard about it um, at the the Neon Museum in Las Vegas, which is in this adorable conch shell motel building that, that he, he designed. designed. Yes, yeah. yes. And the people there were like, you need to see this neighborhood. And mm-hmm. I had, I mean, it's not in the monograph, so I had no idea he had done another neighborhood like that. Mm-hmm. And it just shows the breadth of his architectural influence. And he was posthumously awarded the AIA gold medal. So that is wonderful. But wasn't that like 15 or 20 years after he died? It was, yeah. It was a long time after he passed away. And I, I believe he was awarded the AIA gold medal, I want to say like 2016 or 2017. Yeah. And he, I mean, his significance has been known for a long time. He had two books of house plans that um, were sold throughout the country and were extremely popular. And so his influence is felt throughout the United States when it comes to architecture. Mm-hmm. And his name was nearly forgotten, if not for really the, the advocacy and hard work of, I believe it was his granddaughter. Uh, Paul Williams' granddaughter, Karen Hudson, wrote three books about Paul Williams' work and really advocated for really advocated for the preservation of his work, the recognition of his work. But also we need to think about what works of his are being recognized. Mm -hmm. The homes he built for the stars 
are very much so recognized. However, they're also more likely to get demolished. Frank Sinatra's famous bachelor pad, which is the subject of a 1950s interview on CBS for a program called Person to Person. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is hilarious. <laughs> I highly recommend you watch it. It's a very groovy home. Great bachelor pad, but it was only two bedrooms mm-hmm. in Trousdale Estates in Beverly Hills. Right. So it was demolished in the early 2000s for a Mediterranean-inspired, uh. Uh, I want to say monstrosity, but I've been told <laughs> that I use that word in relation to architecture way too much. <laughs> Um, And so those homes are valued, the homes Mm -hmm. he built for the stars, but he built so many homes for people of all economic backgrounds, and particularly for people of color and those that are marginalized from the more mainstream, from the more mainstream, like, architectural availability. And those aren't historic cultural monuments in Los Angeles. Right. And frankly, they should be. Carver Manor is exceptionally well-preserved because they have a neighborhood association and they all help each other out. And when you do Google Maps going down the street, you'll, you can see how all of these homes are related. And you can see the stylistic sort of identity of the area. And it's really, it's really, really fascinating. And I just wish that it had more, more recognition. Mm-hmm. He, his archive was lost in, in the L.A. riots in the early 90s. Yeah. The, the bank where they were stored was burned down. Um, so we don't have a great deal of his archive or resources left. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been a huge issue with learning more about his work and learning exactly how many buildings he did. But he was extremely prolific. Throughout Southern California, his buildings are everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's it's just something that it's it's sad that it's taken us this long to acknowledge him. He had to learn how to draw upside down, do renderings upside down for so, white clients. That, yeah, that only wanted to sit across from him. Yeah. I read that too. I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and which is unbelievable because a lot of people would hear that he did. XYZ famous person's house or something like that and they would come into his office not knowing that he was black and essentially he had to convince them of his competence and why he was a good architect right without getting too close and that's something like his his bravery in doing that his determination and continuing to build for people from his own community and um, he did a lot of affordable housing as well. It's just something that needs to be acknowledged. And since we've lost his archive, that's it's a huge issue. And also it shines a light on basically how archives and libraries also play into this kind of cultural bias. In Despina Stratagaco's book, she talks a lot about how if female architects end up spending their career in architecture – a lot of times when they try to donate their archives to libraries or museums, they're told it's not significant enough. Mm-hmm. And so where does that archive go when that architect passes away? It goes in the dumpster somewhere. Yeah. And we're losing so much information that just 
people didn't think was worthy of preserving. And I think that in architectural history, architecture, and preservation in general, we really need to look at righting the wrongs of our past. A lot of other academic fields did it in the 70s and 80s, and architecture just didn't. <laughs> Which, I mean, hot take, but <laughs> I, I stand by it. Yeah. And so we have to resort to different methods of um, sort of discovering these female architects. Mm -hmm. And so like Cambridge School, for instance, you could, I guess if you were able to get those archives, you could look at the students who were enrolled there. Um, Julia Morgan, who is a California architect who designed Hearst Castle, her workshop had a lot of female architects. We don't know anything about them. Mm -hmm but maybe there's something in her archive about where they went to school and we can track these programs. There's so much more research that needs to be done and so much, I'm assuming, very interesting stuff. Just hiding beneath the surface. Yeah. As they have said in art history, Anonymous was a woman. Mm -hmm. Do with that what you will. But <laughs> I do think that like more research is required because... Uh, lesser known, more vernacular architecture is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Just because it's not a monumental building doesn't mean it's not important or interesting or worth saving. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's yeah. my super long rant <laughs> about that. There's more available on my website if you'd like to read it. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe let's let's move forward to talk about the new job that you just got, which is super exciting, at the Center for Architecture, AIA New York. Can you talk about that? Yes, 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 yes. I'm very excited. So in July, I will be starting a position as grants manager at the Center for Architecture at AIA New York. Um, the Center for Architecture is a essentially a museum devoted to architecture run by the American Institute of Architects in New York. And what I will be doing is working with the programming manager, the education programs manager, development, that sort of thing, to make sure that our public programming is engaging and can be funded by grants. And so I work with them to discuss the, the projects and the public programming to uh, make sure that I have a full understanding of it so I can find the appropriate grants to apply that to. And it's just a great way to get your hands in all of the different public programming that's going on at the Center for Architecture, which, if you're located in New York, has so much free public programming. It's mm -hmm. insane. Like, October is basically just an extravaganza of <laughs> uh, learning more about architecture and um, really coming to appreciate the built environment of New York. And so I decided to take this job because it really allows me to get into my public programming interests through the lens of architecture and historic preservation. Um, because a lot of people kind of think that historic preservation exists a little bit in its own world from architecture. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, well, no. I mean, basically meaning like contemporary architects and oh, contemporary design okay. and architecture. That's yeah. a little bit more of a clearer way of <laughs> saying that. My apologies. But like from contemporary architecture. But architects are interested in history. Mm -hmm. They want to know more about the built environment around them. When I talk to practicing architects now, 
they always want to know more about historic preservation. And they wonder why they haven't been taught more about it in school and how right. to really bounce off of the built environment and incorporate those sort of historic um, historic features. <laughs> but they want to be able to incorporate the historic built environment in contemporary design. And in my opinion, that makes for better design because yeah. design and architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum. Right. And so it's really exciting to be a part of this and be able to put on these programs that come from a variety of different backgrounds and include history, include contemporary design, but it's all connected. It's a really interesting place to be. I've always wanted to work in a museum, so that's very exciting. I also have a public programming background. When I was in graduate school, I did a lot of historic preservation consultant work in Mm -hmm. New Orleans. And I was lucky enough to work with the city of Hammond on helping to create a preservation advocacy platform for their mid-century modern architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, I've studied a lot about John Desmond um, because of my National Register nomination, and I really became fascinated with his adeptness for what I'm going to call Acadian modernism. Um, <laughs> he worked with A. Hayes Town for several years before he went to MIT. And so A. Hayes Town is known for his Acadian revival homes. Mm-hmm. And in the roof lines, in the massing, in the materials that John Desmond chooses, I believe that there is a clear Acadian influence. And it's a modernism that is unique to southern Louisiana. Yeah. And it comes into play with, who are the architects who did the Superdome? I know this, but... Oh, I don't know. uh, Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Curtis and Davis. (laughs) I do know this, and it just was not coming to me. Um, But John Desmond's work really is in line with Curtis and Davis, and they think about the historic built environment when designing modern architecture. And that is something that a lot of other modern architects don't think about because the way that design was taught in schools was essentially to draw these buildings standalone without anything else around them. Mm -hmm. The best thing about the modernism in New Orleans and Southern Louisiana in general is that it's almost always to scale with the historic buildings around them and generally picks up on motifs and materials and design touches that are distinct to the area. And in particular, with John Desmond's work in Hammond, he did a lot of buildings at Southeastern's campus. Mm -hmm. He did a ton of homes in in Hammond, which inspired other developers to, other developers around that time, to create more modern homes as well. And so there was a wealth of mid-century modern architecture there that, it's really at a precipice of, is this all going to get demolished? Or are we going to create a preservation ethos for modern architecture in this town? And so when Leah Solomon was the director there, Mm -hmm. um, we were talking about this, and she commissioned me to create a website for the mid-century modern architecture in Hammond. And also to create a couple of preservation briefs about what is mid-century modern architecture, What does modern architecture look like in Louisiana? What does it look like nationwide? How to spot modern architecture? 
Um, there was also a preservation brief I put together on preserving your modern home Mm -hmm. and different resources that you could go to. Uh, One of the things I always like to tell people when they're redoing a, when they're redoing a modern home is don't get rid of your built-ins just yet. Live with them for a couple of months and you might like them. Yeah. You might like them. And I, I read that on some obscure blog somewhere and it was earth shattering yeah because I always wondered why people just like ripped out the shelving units and all this stuff you can't get that back and it's not gonna hurt you to live with it for a couple of months and see if you like it right that doesn't mean you have to keep everything but just give your house a chance as is and so I included that in the preservation brief and I also created a series of K through 12 lesson plans using modern architecture and John Desmond's archives and uh, sort of architectural renderings, drawings, design inspiration to create lesson prompts for teachers in the Hammond area or Southern Louisiana area to use architecture as a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. And so since that was in my background, that was something that I really connected with the the director of education with at Center for Architecture. And that's something that's very important to me. So that's another really exciting, another really exciting thing going yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. It's always exciting to have people on that are getting ready to start new adventures because mm-hmm. it's just really cool yeah. <laughs> to hear about it. <laughs> I'm always on a, I, I'm just bopping around yeah. basically. <laughs> I, I like to do preservation work in different parts of the country because preservation is a field that's so hyper local Mm -hmm. and I didn't realize that when I got in and even in like major cities like New York Los Angeles uh, Chicago you know all over the country and and New Orleans there is it's basically like the town hall meeting everywhere yeah even if we're talking about like billions of dollars of arc of uh, real estate investment it's still like the town hall. You're at the approval meeting with people who show up and voice their concerns for the neighborhood. It's really it's really great to see that it's such a local enterprise, but I think that there are ways that we can through creating a more national dialogue with other preservationists, there are ways that we can create a more effective nationwide system that can be better applied to the local areas. Mm-hmm. So, um that's something that I'm interested in because every every state has its own uh, resources right. and it, it's just a little bit different in every state but once you know your basics you can pretty much figure it out yeah yeah okay um, well let's let's move on to my last couple of questions which are my my things that I, I like to ask everybody yeah um, what is your favorite thing about preservation my favorite thing about preservation is how it impacts everyone, whether they know it or not. I think that the historic built environment is what shapes cities and the conversations between buildings, new, old, medium old, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) are just so fascinating to see how these cities and buildings came to be. And everyone comes into contact with buildings. Mm -hmm. Everyone notices buildings. That isn't the same with art. It Art is frequently quadrant off in a museum or it's like, look at this giant public art piece and yeah. people are like, why is that there? <laughs> um, architecture and historic buildings have a reason for being there. Mm-hmm. And people always appreciate it. I, 
I post pictures to my Instagram of random buildings I find. My Instagram is bad preservationist. A lot of times it's just like things that might people might not really appreciate or just think are average. But I frequently get so many people commenting and saying, oh, I never noticed that. That's amazing. Right. Or like, I love that building in Starkville, which is the town where I grew up. And these are people who are not associated with architecture or historic preservation or design in any way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. but they have an opinion on these buildings. And that's something that's very special to our field. And I think it's, it's great how much it actually engages the community because everyone interacts with architecture in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so on the flip side of that coin, what is your least favorite thing? And do you have any preservation pet peeves? <laughs> just a couple um my my least favorite thing about preservation is how people have an unnecessarily hard time talking about difficult topics mm -hmm. if something bad happened at a site acknowledge it mm -hmm. that doesn't make it any less significant it means that you're telling the whole story. Right. And this comes down to a lot of plantations in the South. A lot of those were listed on early National Register nominations. It's just essentially like a one paragraph. Significant because it's a plantation in the South, has beautiful architecture. A lot of those, those nominations completely exclude the tragic history of slavery. Mm -hmm. And that's the same for a lot of, of buildings that have not so great things associated with them. Uh, my work, I, I've recently done a lot of research on Canal Street mm -hmm. and how it's really a fascinating corridor for social change. But it's also been the demarcation line of racial segregation mm -hmm. and essentially racial strife. Mm -hmm. um, so we all know that the re the uh, not all of us, but if you're in New Orleans, you know the term neutral ground comes from the sort of median in the middle of Canal Street that neither um, the French Quarter nor Uptown had jurisdiction over. Mm -hmm. That also was the historic demarcation line of where more people of color lived and more Anglo-Americans lived. Yeah. And so in the Battle of Liberty Place, during Reconstruction, that happened on Canal Street. Mm -hmm. That caused that horrific racist monument um, that was recently taken down to be built there. Mm -hmm. And also Canal Street in the 1960s acted as a really important venue of protest and social change for the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Most of the department stores, well, on Canal Street, if you were a black person, you could not shop or work as a, basically a shop girl or beyond a janitorial position in right. any of the establishments on yeah. Canal Street. And so the Congress for Racial Equality protested that mm -hmm. they picketed these stores on canal street for years to make make sure they were fully integrated there was a sit-in at the woolworth Ooh. woolworth Wool i know that's a <laughs> that's a hard one it's a bit of a tongue twister 
there was a sit-in at the Woolworths lunch counter mm-hmm. on Canal Street, and that was demolished quite recently, definitely in in the 2000s at some point, sometime in the last 20 years. Um, there was little acknowledgement that it was such a huge site for basically uh, social justice and civil rights advocacy when it was demolished. It's just like, oh, the Woolworths is getting demolished. Yeah. Um, the State Theater on on Canal Street, which is currently vacant, and there's a development plan out there for it to turn it into a hotel. Yeah, I've seen some of those sketches. Yeah. I don't like any of those ideas. <laughs> yes, it's basically just like a giant skyscraper hovering above the theater. Yeah. But there was a really fascinating protest in front of the State Theater in New Orleans um, to integrate movie theaters and Aretha Castle Haley and other people from the Congress for Racial Equality created a freedom ring around the box office which is essentially when a group of people grab hands and peacefully make sure people cannot enter Mm -hmm. and this was a protest strategy recently replicated in Sacramento following a an unnecessary police shooting. They did a freedom ring around the arena mm-hmm. um, for an NBA game. And so that's a part of the larger civil rights history of the United States and of New Orleans that should be acknowledged and should be celebrated, frankly, because that takes a great deal of courage. These people were out there every day for years picketing these department stores, movie theaters, Etc. to get them to integrate and to get them to hire people of color. And nobody wants to acknowledge it because mm-hmm. it makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And maybe they name a street after O.C. Haley and stick yeah. it in some neighborhood and then mm-hmm. nobody remembers who she is or all the hard work that she did mm-hmm. for years and years and years and years. Yes, yeah. exactly. And there are ways to activate that history on Canal Street without disrupting the neighborhood. This Mm -hmm. is a great way, and this is what I propose in my research when I presented it at the Society for Architectural Historians, this is a great opportunity to use contemporary art to Mm -hmm. activate that history. Mm -hmm. And New Orleans has a, it might be a triennial now, but the, the prospect biennial, which basically is... A, when the city is curated with loads of contemporary art um, in public places, um, at the New Orleans Museum of Art. Basically, the city is activated with contemporary art. Historic preservation as a whole should use the contemporary art world and contemporary artists to bring light to the history. Mm-hmm. And people in the last prospect were already doing that. Mm-hmm. There were several artists that were talking about Congo Square. And there were several artists that were really looking at the history of New Orleans, um, the Mardi Gras Indians, that sort of thing, because they're commissioned specifically to do these works. And so if we think about how contemporary art can help activate this space and also make it a place where people want to go, if you hear about a certain art installation, like sometimes people will be like, oh, I want to see that thing. Mm-hmm. Like there are... Outside of Las Vegas, there are these stacks of colored rocks called the Seven Magic Mountains. Yeah. It's in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Right. But if you go out there, I guarantee you there's at least 50 people taking pictures by those rocks. Yeah. (laughs) And I know Canal Street is really trying to revitalize itself commercially and economically because 
right now, and I've I've heard people refer to it as such, they call it the world's largest crosswalk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's basically what it is. And there are so many wonderful buildings, and there are so many great ways to activate that history. We just have to lean into the discomfort and that's how we're going to move forward acknowledging that history Mm -hmm. sweeping it under the rug is never a good idea Mm -hmm. or not acknowledging it is never a good idea and i think we owe it to the history of our city to acknowledge canal street for what it is Mm -hmm. it's a demarcation line and it's i mean it's absolutely fascinating i think and i think people would really like to know more about that or maybe I, I'm just a nerd and I love this <laughs> stuff. But if you are interested in learning more about it, the Tulane, um, I believe it's the Armistead Research Center, has a great deal of the documents, the Amistad, excuse me, a great deal of the documents from CORE, from America's Ethnic and Racial History, African Diaspora, Civil Rights, um, they have a lot of local resources on that if you're interested in learning more about it. And there's a great deal there. I highly, highly recommend it. That's how I learned more about the, the Freedom Ring on Canal Street and a lot of the other demonstrations and how long the demonstrations went on on Canal Street. So that's something that I I really recommend. And that's that's my biggest pet peeve is lean into the discomfort it it it's better it's better for everybody involved Mm -hmm. my other issue and i i brought this up a little bit earlier is sometimes aggressively coming at people when they accidentally make a mistake on their home yeah especially if it's a small mistake that can be reversed or if it's not like the Philip Johnson glass house or something and they like replace a window. Like I'm never going to be happy about somebody replacing a window, but I'm not going to come at them and tell them they ruined their home because they did that. Right. And so I think it's important just to remember that I don't think people are trying to ruin their buildings. I think that they're just, they're trying their best and you know, education and patience. But yeah, those are my, my little pet peeves, but also interesting opportunities for research. And that's what I've, sort of taken from that is this bothers me how can we fix it and Mm -hmm. I think that that's I don't know I find it really interesting (laughs) yeah yeah well I wanted to just real quick touch back on what you were saying before that about about leaning into the discomfort because do you think that there is a difference between the way that the United States specifically handles those types of things versus say European countries 120%. Okay. I have so many thoughts on this. Um, (laughs) Well, because so what what first comes to mind for me is is concentration camps. Yes. And uh, as an undergrad, I went to to Germany and to Mm -hmm. Amsterdam on like an Anne Frank kind of trip. Mm -hmm. And so the Anne Frank house, we went to see two different concentration camps one that's not there anymore and mm-hmm. one that is mostly still there. Mm-hmm. And there's still chunks of the Berlin Wall. There's mm-hmm. still Checkpoint Charlie. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that stuff is still there. There's still tons of monuments in, in, in Austria and other countries that, that don't shy away from that, mm-hmm. that bad history. Mm-hmm. And then you come here and it's like, you might go to a plantation house. I'm not going to say which one specifically, but there is one that I read about recently that has, there's like no mention of slavery at all in the 
in their uh, interpretation of the property. <laughs> that is negligent. So- Um, Um, I will say, (laughs) on the record. (laughs) But yes, I completely agree. The United States should really look to Germany and how Germany has interpreted and grappled with their history of Nazism, fascism, and concentration camps. They have handled this in a way that does not shirk any blame. Right. They are fully acknowledging the atrocity of what they did. In fact, for the Canal Street project, I talked about an installation in Berlin. It's Renata Stee and Frieder Schnuck's Places of Remembrance. It's a memorial in Berlin in the Bavarian Quarter, which used to be a very prominent um, Jewish neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And like Albert Einstein lived there. Um, it, it's a huge, very, very significant. It was leveled in the bombing of Berlin and during World War II, but in the early 90s, Die and Schnock were commissioned to create a sort of memorial mm-hmm. there. And what they decided to do was create these kind of pop art signs, and it would just be like a loaf of bread, for instance, on a blue background, very Andy Warhol-esque. And on the back, it would say a specific date and say, on this date, Jews were forbidden from buying bread. Mm-hmm. And that is a way to really place that history in the present Mm -hmm. so that it does not happen again. And one of the things that I thought was so significant about the way Germany interprets this is that they don't shy away from what they did. Right. And I, I know I said that before, but it is really, I mean, it makes for a very powerful Monument and tribute. Mm -hmm. And um, if you ever go to Berlin, I highly recommend going to the Bavarian Quarter to see Stian Schnuck's installation. It's it's wonderful. The United States doesn't do that. Slavery was a horrible atrocity. And in our history and interpretation of sites, we tend to speak about it as like a, oh, well, we freed the slaves, so we're good. And like, yeah. No, that's that's not the case. And it's the same with um, the Native American Removal Act. Like, there's a lot of uncomfortable history in the United States, and we need to acknowledge the horror that we committed. Mm-hmm. We need to tell the full story, and one of the ways you do that is by diversifying your research pool. It's important to encourage people from all different types of backgrounds to get into preservation, ask them what's important, or you'll end up with a plantation tour that doesn't mention slavery. And that's horrible. Mm -hmm. We need to be more upfront with our uncomfortable history. We, the United States did terrible things, but we're unlike other countries in that our founding documents strive toward creating a more perfect union mm-hmm. and ensuring liberty and justice for all. And there's no other country on earth that does that. And so I'm not saying you have to do self-flagellation right. for being from the U.S. <laughs> because we did terrible things in our history, but acknowledge it. And I think, I think that there are really fascinating, interesting ways to do that in site interpretation. Whitney Plantation is... Is a wonderful example. Is a wonderful yes. example. Laura Plantation as well. Mm-hmm. 
And I know that there have been moves at Oak Alley to include more of that history, mm-hmm. especially with the sort of uh, unique economic relationship sometimes between slaves and their masters and that they would sell certain things to their master, which is something I didn't know was a sort of social construct in those environments. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's been adopted. I heard it proposed at the Southeastern Society for Architectural Historians Conference probably about two or three years ago now. But mm-hmm. it was it was really interesting. And I think it's important to include the uncomfortable history. And I think that we can learn a lot from how Germany has dealt with their deeply uncomfortable history. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there are other countries in Europe that fail at it too. It's hard to admit that you've done a terrible thing. Yeah. But... I think it's it's worth it to tell the whole history. And we will encourage more people to get into preservation and appreciate older buildings if we acknowledge this history. Because a lot of times there are a lot of people that are just like, oh, we should demolish all the plantations. And that's because a lot of the tourists don't acknowledge slavery. Right. But those sites are important so we know what happened there. Mm-hmm. We just have to tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody's saying make it disappear. No, we're not. We're not running around down here going plantations are bad. <laughs> but like, we just want we just want the full story when we go out there. You know, it's pretty and these. Yeah, everybody's got a hoop skirt on because mm-hmm. for some strange reason they're picking that one narrow history to <clears throat> um, interpret to. But you know, there's other stuff available. So mm-hmm. okay. I think let's finish up uh, real quick with advice that you have for anyone looking to get into preservation. Apply, apply, apply. That's what I say to everyone is, one, you don't have to have it figured out before undergrad because historic preservation is one of those unique fields where people come at it from all different kinds of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. If you, like the promotional materials for the Tulane MPS program, they have a pie chart of everybody's different backgrounds. And it's wild. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but there's a great way to interpret all of that in preservation because architecture touches every point of life. Right. Um, so don't put too much pressure on yourself to figure it out immediately. You know, try, try a bunch of things. And if you're interested in architecture and historic preservation, I definitely say go for it. Apply to the programs. Do as many nominations and uh, writing opportunities as you can. I always encourage people to, if you, to apply for the things they think they can't get mm-hmm. because you never know. Mm-hmm. Trust me. You never, never know. And so if there's an internship that you see that you think is fascinating but you're like, oh, I don't have – the years of experience you're not going to get it if you don't apply you right. might get it if you apply yeah there are lots of jobs that I've been interviewed for that I did not have the required amount of years of experience for mm-hmm. but I applied and I made a good case for myself right and that's something don't don't defeat yourself you're your own worst critic so if you see an opportunity that's fascinating go for it also uh, really get to know your cohort in graduate school if you are a graduate student in historic preservation a lot of people from my cohort are all over the country 
Emily Butler is a preservation director at Taliesin West. Mm -hmm. Brittany Foley, she is an architect based out of Birmingham who does a great deal of research on historic materials and modern, preserving modern curtain wall in buildings. Uh, She's presented at APT and all of that stuff. And there are so many people from different backgrounds in just in my cohort who can introduce you to other people in preservation and really just allow you to create a community and a network, which is the best thing about preservation is you have a whole group of people who just want to nerd out about some weird (laughs) gas station or something. Um, I have argued hard for the preservation of some gas stations. Uh, (laughs) And so that, I mean, relationships are a big part of every every field, but uh, especially in historic preservation, most grad schools, you work collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Really lean into that, I would say, and don't be afraid to get into the nitty-gritty of research. Doing the extra hour or two of research makes so much difference. There's mm-hmm. so much you can find out just by going through historic papers, especially for like for missing information. For instance, at the Israel M. Augustine Middle School, um, there's a series of murals in the theater there that are basically WPA style, like 1931, um, just a great sort of like, this is America, these are all of our industries, this is why it's great mm-hmm. um, murals. I was writing my New Orleans Nine nomination for that building, and I could not for the life of me find out who the artist of these was. Huh. I finally, (laughs) I spent so many hours trying to find this. I finally found out who the artist was through going through old, going through old payments. It wasn't payments. It was the old papers, newspapers. Oh, newspapers. Um, Yes. I, I was, I finally found out who it was going through old newspapers. Okay. So Um, I was thinking maybe like the records from the school and maybe you had found a receipt for the payments. Or it something would like have. That. I mean, if if only <laughs> um, the murals were complete. They were started by Leslie Powell, okay, who you know did the majority, the bulk of the murals before leaving to go back to New York. And then the really fascinating part of this is the murals were completed by a twenty-year-old Jewish woman named Claire Silber. And they did a great deal of coverage of her in, I'm trying to remember, the New Orleans item. That's that's what it was. It wasn't like the Times-Picayune or Tribune or anything that... Any of the big ones? Any of the big ones. Yeah. But the New Orleans <laughs> item covered this like crazy. And what... I mean, Claire Silber was a 20-year-old with a large mural commission. And that's super impressive. And if I hadn't spent the extra two hours doing research in the historic newspapers, I never would have found that. Mm -hmm. And now I've told every person I can find who (laughs) knows about the school about this. And it just gives more credit to the artists who did these works, including Leslie Powell. I'm really fascinated by Claire Silver just because I think it's great that, you know, a 20-year-old woman is getting up in there and doing a huge uh, mural project. It's absolutely fascinating and so I get lost in the research is probably like don't 
don't be worried about spending too much time on something. Yeah. Because there's always something fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, clearly I've gone on and on and on and on and on <laughs> about very niche topics. So, you know, like the research, and then you can babble about it for three hours like I do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we're getting pretty much close to the end here. I do I do want to have you tell, let people know, you said you have your Instagram, The Bad Preservation, or just Bad Preservationist. Yes, because it's very vernacular buildings and a lot of times typefaces and how those interact with architecture, which is something I really came to be interested in in Los Angeles because the signs are one of the most iconic things about the city because it's meant to be seen from a car yeah um and so like apartment building signage i love i love an ugly typeface like (laughs) give me some curls mt please (laughs) i love it i love it i love it i love it and then what what is your uh, what is your website so um my website is just www.annamarkham.com and on that website you can see all of the research that I've done on Eleanor Raymond and on Canal Street. I'm working on also uploading the Paul Williams research and the Israel M. Augustine research in the coming weeks. I really want to make the work that I've done publicly available so people can reference it and and learn more. Mm -hmm. Please feel free to check it out. You can contact me at annamarkham at gmail.com, Anna M-A-R-C-U-M at gmail.com. <laughs> if you have any specific questions or if you just want to like drop a line and say hello, I, I always like hearing about what other people are interested in preservation-wise because sometimes it will turn me on to something mm-hmm. that I didn't know about. Yeah. And uh, especially like on the Instagram, bad preservationist, shameless self-promotion. <laughs> I, I love learning about certain buildings or certain types of architecture or certain places that have wild signs on there. So, you know, feel free to leave a comment. I, I love it. Or tell me something that you're interested in, and I'm happy to go on a Google deep dive. <laughs> happy to. Like the yeah. underground houses, I did that a couple of months ago. It was great. <laughs> Highly recommend. But yeah, so get in touch. I would love to hear from everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will put all your information too on my website so they can link through and, mm-hmm. you know, and and I'm going to all of this stuff that you mentioned, I'm going to put links in there too so people can you know, follow up if they want to do more research. Yes, that would be awesome. And um, also, if you have any questions about any particular things I talked about, you can email me. Or if you have a correction or more info, always want to hear about it. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, research and history is collaborative. So, yeah. Get in touch. But thank you so much for having me on the pod. Sure, sure. Thank you. I've had a great time. This is fun. Right. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.